the Irish Times Inside Business Podcast, in association with EY, building a better working world. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. Later in the show, I'll be talking to Mark Paul of the Irish Times, who reported this week that the new Holiday Inn Hotel near Dublin Airport is to close after just seven months of trading. It seems set to become an accommodation centre for asylum seekers. This follows a recent decision by Tetrarch to scrap plans for an enlarged hotel on a site it owns on Dawson Street. So what's going on in the industry? Paul Gallagher, General Manager of Buzzwell's Hotel, will give me an industry perspective on the outlook for the sector. First, I'm going to start with the big switch to electric vehicles. The government wants to have 1 million EVs on Irish roads by 2030 to help meet our own risk climate targets. Economist Jim Power has written a report for the motor industry on the switchover, and I began by asking him to outline the government's ambitious plan to get us to a million EVs by the end of the decade, and what that might mean for exchequer revenues, given the vast taxes charged to motorists. Hi, Karen. Yes, I did a report um, with Arup, the engineering consultancy. I did the economic modelling. Arup did the engineering part of it, looking at how we can reduce the light fleet carbon emissions to achieve the EV targets that are set in the Climate Action Plan of 2021. Okay, and just to, I guess, put some context on that, if you look at what happened the Irish motor industry here in 2021, it was an interesting and sort of unusual year in the sense that it was bouncing back from 2020 when a lot of the um, dealerships were shut down because of COVID-19. But there was just under 105,000 new cars registered last year. Diesel accounted for 33.4%. That's down dramatically over the last couple of years. So there's a very definite move away from diesel. Petrol accounted for 32.2%. That's also down significantly, but not as much as diesel because a lot of people have moved from diesel in the last couple of years to petrol. And of course, others have moved to various EVs. But then if you look at the battery EVs, there was 8,646 of them sold last year, accounting for 8.2% of the total market. That is up dramatically from the last two or three years. And indeed, in January, we know that over 11% of new car registrations were battery EVs. And then if you look at the various hybrid models, there's petrol electric hybrids, there's a petrol plug-in electric hybrids, there's a diesel electric hybrid. Those three categories accounted for about 28% of the market last year. That's also up significantly. So I guess the point is that there is a significant move towards the electrification of the fleet. But to put that then into context, if you look at the car fleet at the end of October last year, the most up-to-date data, which we have, you know, there was around just under 2.3 million cars on the road, okay? Petrol cars accounted for 36.4% of that. Diesel cars, 57.7%. Various hybrids, 3.6%. And electric vehicles, just 0.9%. You know, that's 20,513 electric vehicles. And then there was... um. 1% plug-in hybrid, okay, so, so which is a tiny part of the market. So it's clear that there is a pretty significant move towards electrification of the fleet over the last couple of years. But it is also very clear 
that the challenges that are posed by the targets contained in the Climate Action Plan of 2021 are very significant. And just to, just to say what they are, you know, by 2030, it is envisaged that we will have 845,000 electric cars on the road. That includes um, the battery electric vehicles and the hybrid varieties. They're looking at 95,000 electric vans, 3,500 electric trucks and 1,500 electric buses, giving a total of 945,000 electric vehicles on the road by 2030. And given, you know, where we are at the moment, there is a absolutely massive, massive jump to get from where we are today to where we need to be by 2030. And um, the, the other part of the question you asked me, and I don't, I don't want to bombard your listeners with statistics today, but um, I, I think it is important to sort of recognise the contribution that the motor industry makes to the tax take directly. Last year, the Exchequer collected 6.3 billion. Okay, 1.5 billion of that was from VAT and VRT on new and used car, new and imported car sales. Um, 907 million was collected in road tax and 3.8 billion was collected in various taxes on fuel, including excise duty and the carbon tax. Okay, and I guess where this is important is because, you know, as we move towards electrification of the fleet and after 2030, it's envisaged that no car sold will be an internal combustion engine. Okay, so that has huge implications for uh, the future tax take because um, that 3.8 billion on excise and various other duties on fuel will virtually disappear if the targets are achieved. Uh, but also, you know, I do believe that to, in, and I, we can talk about this, I guess, later on, but to move towards those very, very ambitious targets, um, I think the, government's, the government will have to use various types of incentives and um, VAT, VRT, lower road tax could be part of that. So there is, while, while the Climate Action Plan you know, has very ambitious, desirable um, targets for where transport needs to go. And I think it's important to remember as well that um, transport accounts for 39% of energy-related carbon emissions. So if you're going to tackle climate change, obviously transport is an important part of that. Jim, just contextualise for us, the government is talking about a million EV vehicles on the road by 2030. Is that um, citizen vehicles, if you know what I mean, or does that include trucks and light commercial vehicles and all sorts of other, you know, the, the, the postman's van and that type of thing? Yeah, the target is 945,000 vehicles, okay? And um, EV cars will make up 845,000, vans 95,000, and already we're seeing post office vans, for example. Um, I've seen some electric ones about the place. Trucks, 3,500, and then electric buses, 1,500. Okay. But, but in terms of vans, trucks, and buses, you know, we are really starting from virtually zero. So, you know, sure. significant jump to be made in that direction. But generally, the view is that all vehicles on the roads, be they commercial or private, a lot of them will have to be EV by 2030. Sure, all the new ones anyway. I mean, uh, presumably the second-hand oh, yeah. um, fossil fuel yeah. cars will be 
rattling well, around yeah. for a long time to come. Now, that brings the point as to um, how you uh, fuel these uh, electric vehicles or how you um, charge them up. And um, your report suggests that we're going to need 100,000 fast charging points in the next eight years and that we currently only have 1,900. Who's going to pay for that? Yeah, I mean, we got quite a bit of blowback from um, EV evangelists evangelists over the last few days mm-hmm. because they regard that 100,000 public charging points as way, way more than is required. Um, that 100,000 public charging points is based on EU projections. Uh, the European Commission um, estimates that by 2030, they want to have 30 million electric vehicles on the road and that 3 million um, public charging points will be required to um, enable that fleet. So if you extrapolate that to Ireland, um, you know, 945,000 electric vehicles, that would equate to just under 100,000 public charging points. And um, the point also is that a lot of those charging points will have to be fast charging points, you know, rather than the sort of the plug in that will take seven or eight hours to charge the car. And and of course, uh, this is incredibly, it's going to be incredibly expensive. Well, actually, on that point, Jim, I had a, an interview recently um, with the head of Maxall, Brian Donaldson, and I was asking him about you know, their transformation from uh, fossil fuels to electric chargers. And he was saying that it would cost them uh, per site uh, approximately €750,000. He reckons the to do the whole network with fast chargers uh, would cost €90 million. Euro. Indeed it would, yeah. It's incredibly expensive. Uh, and th- th- there is no other way of getting away from this, Kieran, that given the targets that have been set in the Climate Action Plan, um, it is going to be incredibly expensive to get there. You know, there's no doubt about that. You know, you, the, the cost of delivering that many public charging points, the cost of installing adequate charging points in houses is going to be incredibly expensive as well because you cannot just bring a plug in from your car out in the driveway and plug it into the socket. Uh, you know, the, the the whole ESB network in your house will have to be brought up to a certain standard, I believe, to facilitate that. So it, it is going to be in, incredibly expensive to deliver that. But that's the reality. If we want to achieve this, this is the sort of expenditure we're going to have to engage in. And if Ireland misses its various climate targets, you know, there will be a system of fines imposed as well. So I guess to save money, it will be necessary to spend a lot of money. And, and of course, there is the whole sort of moral argument about saving the planet as well, that it's worth spending this money. But a lot of money will have to be spent and there, there is no getting away from that fact any idea, Jim, how much and how much um, the, the taxpayer effectively is going to have to chip in? We actually don't know um, at this stage, to be perfectly honest, because it depends, number one, on how quickly we move towards the 2030 target. And, and number two, what sort of financial incentives the government will have to introduce to, you know, to get people to trade into the cars that are required to achieve those targets one of the problems we have here in, in moving towards these targets, and this is where the expense could become very significant. You know, at the moment, there is a, if you buy an EV, you get grants of about eight, just over eight and a half thousand through, you know, lower VRT, BIK, uh, lower road tax. And also there's a grant for installing 
an electric point in your house that will be capable of charging a car. Okay, but then if you look at the the logistics of the fleet of cars on the road at the moment, the European Commission has a system of European emission standards. And these European emission standards range from Euro 1 to Euro 6. Okay, and um, Euro 1 are cars that give the highest emissions of carbon out the tailpipe and Euro 6 will be the least polluting ones. But the, the reality is that the average age of the car on the Irish road is nine years, okay? And typically older cars are more polluting cars. 31% are Euro 4 or older. 63% of those are Euro 5 or older. So there is a lot there's a lot of old cars on the road and this is the real financial challenge. What you want to do is to try and get people to trade away from the older, higher emission cars towards newer, less polluting cars, ultimately getting to the EV target. OK, but the, the point really is that if I am somebody driving um, an, a 10 or 11 year old car, which would be amongst the highest polluting on the roads at the moment, okay? If I want to trade up to an EV, the financial bridge will be impossible for most people. You know, that, that the cost of doing it is, is absolutely phenomenal. And I think from a government perspective, introducing some sort of scrappage scheme that will enable somebody move from an 11-year-old car to a new EV, that will be just prohibitively expensive. So I think what's going to have to happen is that there's going to have to be a graduated incentive system in place. So, you know, you encourage people driving 10-year-old cars to trade up to five-year-old cars and people driving five-year-old cars to trade up to two or three-year-old cars and and so on up the line. So it's going to be really yeah. complicated, but um, it's it seems inevitable to me that significant subsidisation will be required to move um, towards that 945,000 target. And it will be incredibly expensive. And of course, that expense comes on, cro- on top of those tax losses that will be suffered. And it seems to me that if this is to work, if it's to be successful, people are going to need to be able to put chargers on their driveways, aren't they? I mean, those who have driveways... Because the idea that everybody's going to go and sit for 15 or 20 minutes or whatever in a, a, a filling station waiting for their car to charge up isn't realistic. And again, that's going to be a big expense. I don't know how much these charges cost, but it must be a lot of money. And for a lot of people, uh, it's going to be an expense that they can't afford. So again, the government might have to subsidise. The government will have to subsidise. And it's already giving grants for the installation of these charges. But um, to get the sort of level of charge that's required, it, it, it is going to require significant grants. There is no doubt about that. So, you know, whatever way you look at this, it's going to be bloody expensive to achieve what we want to achieve. And Jim, the other point is the electricity uh, system at the moment is kind of teetering on the edge in terms of supply. So if, if everybody has an electric vehicle, are we going to have enough electricity to power it? And are, are we going to be certain about our supply of electricity? And, you know, you kind of worry about what's going on geopolitically with Ukraine and Russia and gas supplies and so on. I don't think we get any of our gas from Russia, but no, nonetheless, the world is becoming a, a more uncertain place in terms of energy provision, isn't it? Yes, it is. Um, if you look at the impact on inflation of energy costs over the last 12 months, 
that kind of highlights the the issues here. And, you know, we know that about 27% of oil used in Europe is comes from Russia. Um, over 40% of the gas used in Europe comes from Russia. So obviously the Russia-Ukraine situation at the moment you know, does pose a serious threat to that energy supply. So that that in itself is an issue. But then you, you mentioned the fact that our electricity network is already teetering on the brink of sustainability. And, um, you know, if, if you combine with the current status of the energy, the electricity network, um, this sort of electricity demand and also, uh, you know, the normal growth in the economy we would expect, the whole issue around data centers, all of that stuff, um, it's, it's going to put incredible pressure on the system. And then there is also, you know, the question about, um, you know, there's a lot of virtue signaling going on with EVs at the moment. Uh, but the reality is a lot of these EVs are being charged by electricity that's generated using fossil fuel. So who are we kidding? Yes, exactly. The way to address that is obviously to create as much renewable energy in the system as possible. And, um, you know, wind energy is not the total or perfect solution, but it is part of the solution. I think um, offshore wind has to be an important part of it. So we are, and, you know, anaerobic digestion, all of these types of alternative fuels will have to be used to generate electricity. But of course, as you know well, the opposition to wind farms around the country is um, incredibly strong and it's very, very difficult mm. to deliver from wind what we require. So that's that's another part of the challenge. We are going to have to generate a lot more electricity to power these 945,000 vehicles. And of course, Kieran, 945,000, that's the 2030 target. You know, by 2050, every car on the road. And I did various modelling in the report about, you know, where the car fleet will go over the coming years. But I think it's kind of inevitable that by 2050, there'll be at least three, three and a half million cars on the road, all fueled by electricity. So that has um, huge, huge implications for electricity generation as well. Sure. I should ask you, Jim, before I let you go, uh, have you made the switch yourself to EV? No, I haven't actually. And uh, I have a 191 car, okay? And when I was changing it, I looked at the various options because I don't drive in Dublin, okay? I cycle, I walk everywhere. The only time I use my car is if I have to travel down the country, okay, either on business or down to Waterford to home, okay? And um, I would often leave Dublin maybe at two o'clock in the afternoon, drive to Cork, speak at an event, leave Cork at maybe nine or 10 o'clock that night to drive back to Dublin. So EV certainly did not suit my requirements. Okay, the range isn't there. There's not enough charging points. I, don't, I wouldn't have enough time. So EV did not suit my requirements. And then, I, you know, I looked at the, the hybrid version and the hybrid version didn't make a lot of sense for me either, given the type of driving I was doing, I would actually end up using more fuel. So I opted for a pretty low polluting diesel car. And that's where I'm driving at the moment. But herein now is, is the big challenge. You know, I would normally be changing. I change every three years because I didn't use the car for the last two years because of COVID. I'm keeping another year or two. But one of the big challenges for me, and I think this typifies what's happening out there, and we make a number of recommendations in this report. There's a four 
four different suggestions being made that the government should look at to try and incentivize this. But, but one of those is people haven't a clue. I mean, I really haven't a clue what type of car I will buy next. I won't be buying diesel, okay? So hybrid is probably the next best option. I, I still would not feel confident that EV will satisfy my driving requirements. Um, and I think a lot of people, and I speak to people on an ongoing basis, you know, I, I've done a lot of work for the SIMI over the years. I analyze the market every quarter and I try and forecast where car sales are going and so on. So I I get, I dig deep into the industry. Um, and so people who think I know something about it ring me, ask me what type of car should I buy? And I just can't answer the question at the moment. So there's a massive amount of work to be done to provide consumers with the knowledge they require um, to make a sensible purchasing decision. Yeah, there sure is. And I think a lot of people are uh, confused about what they should do next uh, in terms of their car purchases. Uh, Jim Power, very interesting. Uh, thank you for that. We might get you back in 2030, perhaps, to see if we've met those targets or not. <laughs> I, I still be cycling. <laughs> All right, Jim Power, thank you for joining thank us. Thank you very much, Kieran. We're going to take a short break now. When we return, I'll be looking at the outlook for the hotel sector in the wake of the Holiday Inn's decision to close its Dublin Airport Hotel to the public. Back in a few moments. At EY, our purpose is to build a better working world. As one of Ireland's leading professional services firms, our exceptional people are at the centre of everything we do. We deploy technology at speed and innovation at scale to deliver exceptional solutions for our clients, enabling them to transform and grow. To find out more, visit ey.com. Welcome back to this Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. On Tuesday, Mark Paul of the Irish Times reported on how the recently built Holiday Inn Hotel near Dublin Airport is to close after just seven months of trading. It's set to become an accommodation centre for asylum seekers. Mark joins me on the line now to discuss the story, along with Paul Gallagher, General Manager of Buswell's Hotel in central Dublin, to give me an industry perspective on the outlook for the hospitality sector. Now, Mark Paul, a very interesting story that you had earlier in the week about the Holiday Inn Hotel, a relatively new development out by Dublin Airport. It's closing after just seven months of trading, closing to the public, and it looks as if it's going to become an accommodation centre for asylum seekers. What's going on there? Yeah, so it is. It is going to become an accommodation centre for asylum seekers. This is this is a hotel that cost over 50 million euros to build. Um, it's just across the motorway from the uh, from the airport, um, adjacent to the site of the old Bewley's uh, Airport Hotel, which is now um, uh, which is now a, a Clayton, um, I, I believe. So, so it's directly opposite to that. Uh, a brand new building. It opened in July, um, developed by a company called JMK, which is um, run by... Uh, a, a, a Pakistani Irish businessman called John, or known as John Kajani, um, and the hotel opened uh, in last July after a delay uh, caused by the pandemic. Um, um, a very, very good physical product, um, four hundred and twenty-one bedrooms. So at that size, it's the fourth biggest hotel in Dublin. Um, but it has decided now to close its doors to the general public, and it has taken up an exclusive contract with the state. Um, as a reception centre for, um, um, for, for people who are seeking asylum and, 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 and seeking refugee status in Ireland. Um, so there is, a, there is a big push on at the moment by the government to secure extra accommodation for asylum seekers um, and, and people seeking refugee status. Um, ever since the borders have reopened after the pandemic, um, it's not just holidaymakers and business travellers who have started to flow over borders again. There is also a renewed uh, movement of people um, 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 from 
you know, war-torn parts of the world or, 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 or other parts of the world seeking asylum or seeking to migrate. Um, and so all of that has started up again. The Department of Children, which is a, the government department that is in charge of housing asylum seekers, um, it told me during the week that they've had 3,300 new arrivals since October. Um, so um, one of the, the challenges that they faced throughout the pandemic is that the National Reception Centre near Finglas um, um, is, it, they've had to thin out the numbers because of uh, social distancing and so on. And you can't, you know, you, you can't be bunging loads and loads of people into rooms. So they've really been out in the market over the last couple of years um, and trying to do these kind of deals, these exclusive deals with hotels and, uh, uh, you know, buying up uh, uh, entire hotels for a couple of years at a time and using those to house people. It's a sticking pastor type solution because the entire direct provision system um, that's due to be done away with uh, at the end of 2024. Um, the government is trying to move to a new system um, where, where asylum seekers sort of have their own front door um, rather than uh, lumping them all into hotels. But it seems this system has to get bigger before it ends um, to try and cope with this influx of numbers, to try and cope with the impact of the pandemic. And for some hotels in Dublin and also outside of Dublin, it's proven to be a very, very stable source of revenues. Mark, is this a call by the hotel operator and owner that effectively air travel over the next uh, 12 months at least, um, you know, it's going to be a slow return uh, in terms of uh, tourist numbers and in terms of air travel. It certainly could be a way for this company in particular to take away the risk of that. The company, JMK, have been one of the most active investors in the in the Irish hotel industry over the last couple of years. I mean, they have the, the Holiday Inn Express on O'Connell Street in the old Aircon building. Um, next month, they're due to open uh, Hampton by Hilton um, down beside a forecourt. They're building a hotel in Cork. They're building a hotel uh, up in the Titanic Water in Belfast. I believe they may also be looking at a new hotel in Tipperary. So they've taken on, uh, uh, you know, a lot of of financial facilities and debt facilities to do that. Um, a company grown that quickly, I suppose, you needs a little bit of solidity in there as well. And if you look at the, the Holiday Inn out by the airport, 421 rooms, it's not a hotel that's going to get a lot of domestic passing trade. It's not the sort of hotel where you'd be going for, you know, your communions and christenings and that kind of stuff. You're not going to get a lot of staycationers. They're not going to get any upside whatsoever from um, the rebirth of domestic tourism, the staycationers as we call them, um, because they're not going to want to stay out by uh, a motorway out in, in North Dublin behind Darlestown Cemetery. It's just it's just not attractive for those people. But if, if you're an international traveller coming in and you've got an early flight or you're also with Holiday Inn, you're plugged into its massive global booking system. And those booking systems haven't been able to pivot to the domestic market the way um, the way some other hotel operators have. So if you're JMK and if you sign up at a fixed rate for, uh, for a year or two years or however long their contract is, those are stable revenues. You know exactly how much uh, is coming in. It's, it's easier for you to finance it and you can go off and concentrate on all the other developments that you're doing. Um, so it's, uh, it, it takes some of the risk out of the equation for them, I would say. Paul Gallagher of Buswell's Hotel. Um, welcome to Inside Business, first of all. What's your read of the decision by the owners of, of this Holiday Inn property to effectively take themselves off the market for uh, at least 12 months and provide accommodation for asylum seekers instead? Well, as Marcus said, it, it must make economic sense to have a certainty of turnover from the state as opposed to uh, hoping that international travel will return to such a level that it would meet the budget expectations of whatever the business plan was for that particular hotel. So it's it's cash in the bank for the hotel uh, for however number of years they're going to sign the contract for. 
And I'm assuming at the very end, the state will pay for the full refurb of that hotel to put it back into the new position it, it, it gets it in. That typically is what happened. That happened out in City West as well. There was a, a certain amount of money had to be reinvested by the state to return it to operating order. So, I mean, that's, that obviously is one of those things. COVID has been quite a disruptor. So airport hotels generally have their own sort of economy. You know, the, things at the airport are very different to city centres. Uh, and, you know, without international travel uh, and the lack of knowing how it's going to perform into the next two or three years, it probably makes huge business sense. Obviously, as a hotelier in Dublin city centre, removing 500 rooms out of the equation is good news to me. Uh, but that's a purely selfish thing. Okay, well, it's okay to be selfish from time to time, Paul. Um, tell us a little bit about the trading environment for Buzzwell's Hotel. When when did you sort of uh, reopen uh, fully and how is trading uh, going for you at the minute? Yeah, well, we reopened uh, middle of last year again uh, and had more disruptions. But, you know, it's it's been pretty uh, light in terms of trade volume for quite some time. Uh, the restriction at 8pm was an absolute killer for the business. Nobody was coming to stay in a hotel to be told to, you know, pretty much go to bed or just sit in the bar on your own with no one else to look at at five past eight in the evening. So once that was removed, the the volumes have increased magnificently. I mean, my reservation volume is very good at the moment. Ground floor over the last number of weeks, we've seen enormous uh, walk-in trade around the lunch period. Uh, so much so that, you know, staffing it is a bit of a challenge. But, you know, I'm very optimistic now about the future, but we've had a very difficult couple of years in Dublin. Uh, city hoteliers have really struggled. So in Buswell's case, we had to put a million euros of cash flow back into the business. So notwithstanding there were government supports, we still had to find extra cash for the hotel. Uh, and so urban hotels, particularly in cities, have had a devastating experience. So... But it's behind us now, thankfully, and next Monday sees the removal of most of the, the final restrictions on our operations. Uh, and I'm delighted because wearing glasses and wearing a face mask don't go well together. I'm, uh, I look a bit foggy most of the time, but certainly with masks on, I can hardly see a thing. It's like working in a tropical rainforest. My glasses are always wet. Um, but look, I think it's up, up and away and off we go. And I'm delighted to get trading again. Uh, obviously, the supports have been very important, but... I never wanted to have to operate a hotel based on having supports. I'm happy to stand on my own two feet and make it work. Uh, so, you know, we look forward to a bright future again. Paul, what level of occupancy are you currently achieving? Uh, I'll do about 55% in February. I'd probably do about 65% in March. Uh, July and August look quite good at the moment. Um, overall for the year, I'm, if I reach 60% occupancy in 2022, I think that'll be success for my hotel. Uh, to put that in perspective, in 2019, that was around 84%. Um, the yield will be lower, though, I mean, because of uh, more room stock in Dublin, obviously, and less pressure on, on those rooms that are available. So my yield will be down, you know, probably about 25 euros a room. Uh, but look, it's, it's a journey. We'll, we'll get back to there, hopefully. But it'll probably take two or three years, really, for, for this thing to really unwind from where we have found ourselves. And is it mostly domestic business that you're getting, Paul, as opposed to international? And just wondering, uh, Leinster House is fully open now, so are you getting a lot of uh, TDs and senators and visitors uh, coming into? Yeah, well, the senators and TDs, we we're very fortunate. They stayed with us right through the lockdown periods because essential services 
were allowed to occupy hotel rooms. So uh, they gave us purpose on a Monday, Tuesday, and uh, sorry, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday night. So we were very grateful. That helped sustain some jobs in the hotel. Uh, at the moment, a lot of Irish uh, from around the country, really, not really Dublin people, obviously, because not that appealing, but we're starting to see UK visitors at the moment. I had, uh, and a good few from Northern Ireland. Not very many Welsh came for the Welsh game. Obviously, the Italians don't really travel. Uh, so, you know, I think we're seeing more of it now for the few days around St. Patrick's Day. We're full, which is great. They're all individual. There's not groups in there. Uh, relatively few Americans. So mainly, these are mainly Europeans, which had been a trend over a number of years. Anyhow, Europeans are visiting in greater numbers, uh, which is really encouraging. Um, so, we're, you know, I think it, it, it augurs well that things will, will return to some level of activity. And Paul, you mentioned that the masks are going to go next Monday. Um, so what's the plan in Buzzwells? Will, will staff stop wearing masks? Will you ask staff to continue wearing masks? Will customers have to wear them? Customers currently don't have to wear a mask when they enter a hospitality premises right now. So you're not required to wear one as you enter and you don't need to wear one as you walk around. We have to wear masks until Monday. That's a requirement of the regulations. Staff who wish to continue to wear a mask will be allowed to wear them. Uh, staff who aren't well will be asked not to turn turn up for duty. Uh, an antigen test, we would ask them if they haven't been well to take an antigen test to make sure that they are well. Uh, but most of my staff, I think nearly all my staff, will actually stop wearing masks. I think they are looking forward to it. it you know, working an eight-hour shift uh, in a mask it, it, it is a big ask. I mean, most people only really wear them on public transport and where they enter retail or hospitality, but then they go home and take them off. You know, eight hours straight with a mask on is, is a big ask for staff. Uh, also, I mean, you lose all that sort of facial contact where there's a welcoming smile, uh, you know, and, and voices get muffled because of masks as well and older customers, hard of hearing. You know, they're all sort of little barriers to, to better communication. So it'll be good to get them and put them away. Paul, we also had the situation uh, recently where Tetrarch, which has a lot of investments in the hotel sector, they decided not to go ahead with the expansion of their property on Dawson Street, uh, which I think has been closed for a while anyway. And they were planning a joint effort with the um, RAAC next door. I'm just wondering, you know, when you consider that and you consider the, the Holiday Inn, I think the Ballsbridge Hotel is closed as well, uh, etc. Is this a bit of a signal that, um, you know, it's going to be a tough few years in the Dublin market? And there are a lot of new hotels in the pipeline for Dublin. I'm just wondering on your thoughts as to whether they will go ahead or not. Yeah, I think if you had a site right now and you're going to put a hotel on it, you know, you might consider doing residential now. Uh, The demand is for residential. The hotel pipeline is quite crowded. I think it's about 4,500 rooms in the pipeline. 2,800 may come on stream. They won't all be hotels. Some of those will be apart hotels. Uh, the Dawson Street one is interesting. I think, you know, building costs and cost inflation in terms of materials will have had an impact on the overall business model for that hotel. It's a very tight site, obviously, as well, and it's adjacent to a Lewis line. Uh, they won't be allowed to, to block the street in any way. So I can imagine, you know, that it is going to be, a di- it was always sorry, going to be a difficult one to, to, to do a big major operation on. Uh, you know, I think... There is a little bit of uncertainty around new hotels. There's a bit of pushback, I think, uh, socially in, in general public are a little bit unhappy about hotels. You see some signs around Dublin, houses, not hotels. Um, and you've seen that uh, certainly over the north side of the city uh, with a number of pubs, 
you know, where the, the ownership has changed and now there's a, a change of use or planning permission sought uh, and people are, do feel that they're losing some cultural venues as a result. Uh, of course, hoteliers would argue that hotels in themselves offer a centre for cultural activity in that we have meeting rooms, we have bar spaces. Um, and, you know, whilst a, a pub has that, but, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to get into the particular pub, but it, I think it's a balance in planning always, you know. Have we, we, need, we need something of everything and every street needs a composition of types of businesses. You wouldn't want a street just of all the hotels, nor would you want a street just full of apartments. So uh, a balanced development plan is what really is needed for the for the city particularly. But also, I mean, hotels offer job prospects to people who are working and living in the local area where maybe they mightn't have job prospects without them. Uh, so, I mean, I think it's, it's important that, uh, you know, consensus doesn't prevent hotels opening, but at the end of the day, if the business plan doesn't stack up, then a hotel shouldn't open at all. Mark, what's your view on the outlook for the hospitality sector here? Well, just looking at the hotel sector in particular, um, just I suppose in the short term, looking forward to the rest of 2022, it's not just the return of international travel, I think that's going to give the sector a boost. It's also the return of big events. I mean, Paul mentioned, you know, there wasn't a lot of Welsh fans over and, and, and obviously the Italians don't travel in big numbers, but Garth Brooks fans do. And uh, and, and that's one that, uh, you know, every hotelier in Dublin is going to be a Garth Brooks fan um, for the next while uh, with all of those gigs. So full stadia, Crow Park full, the Aviva Stadium full, for, for whatever it is they're full. I mean, that's a huge, huge boost um, for the Dublin hotel sector in particular. So look, long may that continue for, from the point of view of hoteliers. Looking at the amount of hotels coming on stream, I mean, Paul is exactly right in this number of 4,500 new hotel rooms were due to be delivered by 2023, according to Savills. And you would wonder now how many of those will actually be delivered. I think with all this new supply coming on stream, you kind of have to draw a distinction between two different types of proposal. One is a hotel-backed proposal and the other one is, you know, some of them are just speculative. There might be no hotel company involved. There might be no hotel operator involved. It's a developer coming in, lobbing a hotel, a, a plan for a hotel on paper and trying to get planning permission for it without having finance in place for it, without having an operator, without having a real plan for whether or not it could happen. Those kind of ones, I think a lot of those will fall away. That's my own personal opinion, is that a lot of those ones will fall away. But the ones where a hotel company is involved from the get-go, um, um, those ones will continue um, um, to be developed. Um, and, and then just with the, with the return of, the, uh, of, of international travel, um, look, there is always the chance at some stage, and I don't mean to be uh, uh, the one who, uh, who sits here all pessimistic, but, you know, if there is a return to travel restrictions next winter or something like that, there may not be. But if there is, I mean, look, that, that's, that's going to have another impact again. Um, so um, outside of Dublin, uh, looking, at, looking at, the, at, the, um, at the market, look, anybody who has tried to book a hotel in an Irish tourism hotspot this weekend for, um, um, for, or, or this week even, um, which, is, which is the midterm break week for schools, knows that a lot of hotels outside of Dublin at the moment are doing quite well in these school holiday um, um, hot times. Um, so, um, uh, you know, they should have a good summer. I mean, there will still be a lot of Irish people, um, particularly older people, I think, who will still be a little bit nervous about jumping onto a, a, a flying Ryanair cigar tube um, and going off to Spain or to France this summer and who may just want one more year down in West Cork or in Killarney or, or, or the West Coast or, 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 or Hookhead or somewhere like that instead. Um, so the staycation market is is still going to have outsized importance. But the big factor 
that the big cloud I think that hangs over the sector generally um, is the labour shortage. And that's that's going to be a massive problem for the sector um, this year and, and, and it will constrain any extra growth there might be there. I mean, there are still some hoteliers and, and re- also restaurateurs and other tourism businesses who can't expand because they just can't get staff or who can't expand profitably um, because they can't get the staff. And that's not going to be a simple problem to fix. I mean, it's not going to be a case that the government is just going to come in and, 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 and allow work visas for hospitality workers from, from anywhere in the world. I mean, they will keep constraints on it. Um, there's political issues around it as well. I mean, they would come under pressure from certain political parties were they to do that. So pressure will come on hotel businesses and hospitality businesses, I think, perhaps to, uh, to hike higher wages for those who can afford it to invest more in training. Um, I know Falcher Ireland are deeply involved and deeply embedded in, 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 in trying to, to manage the sector through this uh, labour crisis. But I think that's going to have as much of a bearing, whether it's the pandemic or extra hotels, I think the labour shortage will have as much of a bearing on the sector this year as anything else. Yeah, what about that point, Paul? Are you experiencing that labour shortage or, or wages? Are you having to pay higher wages? I'm just wondering about price inflation too coming through uh you know, if you're booking a room or even on your on your menus on the ground floor? Yeah, I think uh, obviously um, employee numbers or the, the tightness in the market for hospitality staff, I think it's well documented. Uh, great employers will always find it easier to get staff than poor employers. Uh, but maybe the industry hasn't, uh, when they do re- try to recruit, don't put all the the advantages or the benefits of working in hospitality forward, you know. Uh, there are very few sectors that provide meals on duty, and these are meals that the staff can choose. Uh, lots of hotels now have sick pay schemes, pension schemes, uh, discount schemes, and staff rates in other hotels. So if you're in a, a, a marketing brand, uh, and I'm in original Irish hotels, all staff can stay in 58 hotels at staff rates, and there's discounts for weddings and so on. Uh, that's beyond then just the simple terms and conditions of employment or the the pay rates. So... I think we have seen pay rates being, you know, starting to increase. Uh, you know, most hotels now are offering in excess of minimum wage, and that's a that's a welcome move. Uh, and I think it'll continue on for some time to come, uh, because other sectors are also looking to, to secure the same staff. Uh, you know, I'm well aware. Even just driving down to Adair today, lots of businesses now have signs outside their doors saying "staff wanted," uh, which is, you know, it's a sign of the times that the economy is obviously booming away. But overall, we had 26,000 staff in 2020 in the sector, so we lost a lot of staff very quickly. We're back to about 57,000 in the sector. Uh, so, I mean, again, those who do it well will do well. Those who don't do it well won't. So uh, it should improve uh, the way the employer looks after their staff. It'll, it, it will force bad employers to become good ones. And that that should be welcomed because I think we need to be uh, better employers generally, and uh, those who are exemplars, I think we'll follow them. Okay, Paul Gallagher of Buswell's Hotel and Mark Paul of the Irish Times, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Jim Power, Mark Paul and Paul Gallagher. The show was produced by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks also to our sponsor EY for its continued support. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care. <laughs>